episode 335, why is private equity willing to pay $55,000 per patient to primary care startups? Today, I speak with Brian Klepper. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I'm talking with Brian Klepper. If you haven't heard of him, Brian's a longtime healthcare analyst and former CEO of the National Business Coalition on Health. This interview takes off like a shot, as most of my conversations with Brian Klepper do. We're talking about primary care and its various iterations. We start out with Exhibit A, the HMO version of primary care from the 90s. This is a great comparator to really get a handle on what's going on today. During the heyday of HMOs back in the 90s, primary care was basically a glorified gatekeeper, kind of doing two things. On one hand, they were restricting access. It wasn't an accident that it was really hard to get an appointment with a PCP. On the other hand, it also wasn't an accident that once you got there, the PCP only had seven minutes to spend with you, which basically meant that you left with an appointment to see a specialist at, of course, the health system that probably had just bought that PCP practice. Everybody's happy then, right? I mean, specialist volume goes up. They make a ton of money for the health system. Plans make a ton of money because they, they make a percentage of total healthcare spend. Oh, right. Everybody's happy except the patient who can't get care and the PCP who can't do their job. By the way, for more information on why the 90s version of the HMO industry crashed and burned, listen to my conversation with Alex Young on this exact topic. There's a link in the show notes. A big part of the why really actually took me by surprise. But back to primary care. So today, in broad strokes, we have three kinds of PCPs. And when I say three kinds of PCPs, we're not really counting urgent cares or what amounts to urgent cares in that mix, meaning not counting a lot of the retail clinics because they don't really manage patient care like you'd hope a PCP would manage care. Like last I checked, none of them were managing much more than an episodic visit and you can't manage a chronic condition in like 15 minutes. So like I said, there's three kinds of PCPs that are around today. And let's call the first kind the OPCP, the original PCP. This version of the PCP office is primarily fee-for-service. Maybe they have a couple of capitated contracts, but the distinguishing factor isn't really what their payer mix is. It's that they're not taking on much risk or any risk of real consequence. Second, we have direct primary care doctors. This group tends to cut out insurers and work directly with either employers or patients themselves. They take a monthly fee, and in general, a patient can see them however much they need to. Again, no risk or little risk is assumed here beyond the primary care services themselves that are rendered. Third, we have what Brian calls industrialized primary care, or some people call advanced primary care, or APC but I'd probably call it something different. I'd call it taking risk for the full continuum of care, primary care. Maybe I wouldn't even call it primary care at all because this third category really is starting to color outside of the lines of primary care. This third iteration requires many things to accomplish. It requires an unimpeachable relationship with the patient. You cannot be successful with this otherwise. It requires great virtual slash digital capabilities. It also requires data, data to help ensure that care gaps are filled, but also to make sure that patients are referred to high quality, high value specialists downstream who will actually create outcomes. It also includes optimizing specialty pharmaceutical usage, for example. 
you know, Brian gets into this and how a state employee health plan is on track to save like $1.3 billion in this fashion. Brian believes that this third iteration of primary care, this APC industrialized primary care, is the third leg of a three-legged stool that is needed to transform healthcare. If you must know, the second leg is identification and the use of high-performing specialty services, and the third is value-based reimbursement environment. Most of the second half of this conversation with Brian is about why there's just a flurry of investment into various forms of these advanced or just maybe even regular primary care models and how they might evolve moving forward. I asked Brian about carbon health and their recent claim that they can do primary care with about 25 to 30% EBITDA, even at Medicare FFS rates. So there's that. One last thing. Next week, we'll be posting an Ask an Expert with Brian Klepper, where he gives the backstory about how the RUC that AMA committee basically killed primary care. So come back for that show after you're done with this one. It's a plot full of intrigue, that's for sure. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Brian Klepper, welcome back to Relentless Health Value. I'm delighted. So it definitely sounds like one kind of primary care model is that HMO model where patients must go see a primary care doctor who becomes the gatekeeper of the rest of the health system. Let me jump in right there. I don't like the term gatekeeper because it has a pejorative connotation to it. Well, let me just interject because I'm not talking about a good version here. You know, if we're we're talking about the HMO version of the 90s, it wasn't a good model. I mean, I don't think you would disagree with that. No, I don't disagree at all. No, you're right. Yeah, I mean, and, and the job of the PCP in that operation was to do steering to aligned entities. That's right. I agree. So like that's a cautionary tale, I guess. Yeah, it is. One of the things that we have going for us now that we didn't have then is we're beginning to have oodles and oodles of quality data to say, you know, if you go to this doctor or this hospital, not only is the quality going to be better or worse, but you're going to have a higher or lower probability of, of being harmed or die. That's all available now. And within this incredibly complex morass of, of healthcare services, the job of the good primary care is not just to, to look in your nose and your ears and It's to manage complexity and to be a patient advocate and guide for you so that when you get referred to a a specialist, the specialist's job is to not make a decision on what's going to happen to the patient, but to call the primary care doctor and say, here's what I think we ought to do. Let's decide together what's going to happen to the patient. So to actually be the quarterback. Right, to actually be the quarterback because we're we're in such complex territory. Let's fast forward to where we are right now in the middle of 2021. You just mentioned that there's data that is available now that wasn't available in the 90s at the, you know, peak HMO. Given that, if you were going to segment the types of PCP practices or approaches maybe into buckets, the HMO version being the the cautionary tale and, and certainly one of them. What are the others? What we're seeing now is industrialized medicine. And if you take away the financial issues, industrialized medicine is exciting because it 
brings to bear the things that industry has learned how to do well, make use of data to make better decisions, to standardize process. All the things that industry can do well is now happening and is being concentrated right now into primary care. So I draw big distinctions between old-fashioned primary care groups that are in the wild that might belong to a hospital or they might be independent, but they're really just your old-fashioned primary care versus direct primary care, which is really concierge. They don't Typically, they haven't invested a lot of money in, in, in analytics or anything like that. They spend more time with the patient, but they're really seeing a patient one-on-one, and they really are old-fashioned, mostly in the, in the same old way. And then the new and advanced primary care groups, which make heavy investments in analytics and standardization and are really thinking not just about that patient's primary care conditions. Primary care typically takes care of prevention, minor acute issues, and management of chronic disease. What it has the opportunity to do is to become a platform for the management of healthcare, clinical, and financial risk anywhere in the system. And that's the industrialized version of it. The problem that goes along with that is that now immense amounts of money are being infused into primary care organizations. So it sounds like what you're doing is you're you're creating two additional buckets here. One of them is the advanced primary care. And one of the things that you have said in the past, Brian, is that advanced primary care is where primary care recognizes that they're really responsible for the entire continuum of care. Is that how you put it? Yep. Yep. So you've got the APCs and then maybe let's call them the OPCs. The old primary care, <laughs> where the, the primary care physician is just very focused on this exact moment in time and not necessarily the entire continuum. Would, is, that, is that a fair breakdown? Yeah, I think that is fair. Let me ask you this. Where does direct primary care fit in this model, fit in this breakdown? Let's talk about it in sort of a hierarchical way. Let's talk about advanced primary care first, if that's okay. Absolutely. The advanced primary care organizations, you're talking about organizations like ChenMed or Iora that was just acquired by One Medical or CareATC or Everside or Marathon Health. These are organizations that have a lot of locations and they are at some level making a guarantee to their purchasers who are in many cases employers or Medicare Advantage plans, managed Medicaid plans. And they're saying, give us a certain amount of money and we will manage everything that goes on with that patient for that amount of money. So they're taking downside risk. They are taking risk, yes. And they are tooled up to do that, which means that they are thinking not just about primary care, but if I've got a really problematic mental health patient, do I send him to a a psychiatrist that I know? Or do I send him to a psychiatrist that is part of a group that has demonstrated that they really, really excel at managing that kind of patient? That's an important question. If I've got somebody who walks in the door and it turns out in primary care, it's one in five patients are like this, who has a musculoskeletal problem, do I send him to an orthopod I know? 
or do I send him to an organization that specializes in managing musculoskeletal problems and has data to demonstrate that they have superior quality and cost outcomes? So how do I manage patients throughout the full continuum? What are the industrial tools and human resources that I need to do that? That's a different mindset about how healthcare works than a guy standing there going, well, I'm going to quarterback a a problem. And if it gets too complicated for me, I'm going to send him to somebody I know who's downstream. I think it also would have to do with just the access to the PCP as well, because there is a huge rise in urgent care. You know, payers are starting to spend more money on urgent care than they did on emergency rooms. And one of the reasons why is because one of the things that urgent care has figured out is that it's they're super convenient. You know, if I want to have an urgent care visit, I can go on my phone and look up the urgent care and see what the wait time is. I can check in mobily so that when I get there, I'm kind of like walking right in the door. That's a big contrast to a PCPs in a lot of cases that you still have to call and you, it's going to be three weeks for you to have an appointment. And if you do have an emergency, they'll try to squeeze you in and then you know you're going to be sitting there for two hours. I think there's not only kind of the downstream coming out of the PCP, but then also I think a factor is the ease within which the patients can even access the PCP to get that help. That's exactly right. The question that you have to ask there, I mean, part of the reason that urgent care has become so popular is because it's also so lucrative on the provider side. Organizations like Walmart have tried to walk that fine line and they've tried to make inexpensive urgent care available. But at the end of the day, what primary care really needs to be about is not just I cut my leg or I have a sore throat. It really needs to be about the management of life issues as well. And the importance of having a a solid relationship with a person or an organization that really knows you and knows about you is paramount. And and those two things are are butting up against each other right now. By the way, I interviewed Rebecca Etz on the podcast from the Larry Green Center. And she actually, this is proven definitively that PCPs who have the better relationships with their patients actually have better, better outcomes. That's exactly right. Better relationships quantifiably translate to better care. I think the industrialization of primary care, that's why there's such a flurry in Wall Street on this group. This is one of three legs of a stool that are critical to fixing American healthcare in, a, in any meaningful way. Really briefly, the three legs are advanced primary care. What are the other two? The second one is the identification and use of high-performing specialty services. And the third is, is a value-based reimbursement environment. Which is something that the advanced primary care are equipped to do the APCs, but not the OPCs, you know, because right. if you're going to manage a value-based environment, you got to be doing stuff that's data-driven. That's right. But in addition to that, you've got to stop taking fee-for-service reimbursement from health plans. And you need to go to the guy to the guy that's actually paying the bill, which is the, in this case, the employer or the, the Medicare Advantage plan say, give us the money and we'll manage it from there. But we get to share in the savings and the value that we create. That's the only way out of this for primary care. It also happens to be the only way out of this for the rest of us. The health plans have put primary care into a box 
that is impeding the progress of the entire rest of the system. Now, in order for APC to actually have a value proposition, it's interesting because I think sometimes in healthcare, we get very wrapped up in our own silo. And we say things that we know have value within our silo, but we forget that a different silo is the one with the money (laughs) and the one that we get money from. So, you know, one of the things that I've heard quite frequently within the primary care silo is talk about relationships with patients, for example, which, as we know, drives better outcomes. However, if we're trying to talk to a payer a self-insured employer, a large health plan, pick somebody, the government even, somebody that's got the cash, We let's just say it's not super successful to go over there and say, you should pay me money because I have great relationships with my patients. Like that's not a story that resonates, right? Right, right. Given this, the APCs would seem to have a distinctive advantage because they would be able to quantify... Uh, things that an old school PCP may not be able to do just very fundamentally. You're exactly right. Can we talk about the Iora example for a minute? Let's do that, Brian. Iora, which was founded by Rushika Fernandapool, Atul Gawande wrote about his high cost chronic clinic that Rushika ran in Atlantic City a few years ago. Iora now has 38,000 patient lives under management. And it was just acquired by One Medical for $2.1 billion. If you do the arithmetic, One Medical paid $55,000 per Iora patient under management, a breathtaking figure. And and what that says is, is that the people who supplied that $2.1 billion, which was done in a stock swap, so it may be funny money to some degree. But what it says is, is that they weren't thinking that this was a primary care play. They were thinking that this was a percentage of total healthcare spend play, that by having an organization like like Iora that is used to taking 85% of total Medicare Advantage premium and managing everything for that amount of money for a block of patients, they had established themselves as capable risk managers, and that was the future. The market was willing to pay $55,000 per patient. The value there wasn't primary care goings on per se. What the value there was, was basically the ability to manage the risk across the full continuum of care and then take a piece of the dollars, frankly, that the government's paying to manage that risk. So if they could manage risk better, the savings could be immense and they're getting a piece of that action. And primary care's role in that is that they have become the platform to do that from. So the point of primary care then becomes so much more than just seeing a patient in that one moment in time. It becomes all of the infrastructure which is necessary to do all the things that you were talking about earlier. Mrs. Jones gets to a musculoskeletal place that is actually helping to do all the things which would be necessary in order to have happy patients who aren't racking up a fortune in their pursuit of trying to get care. 
Exactly. The story of not only IORA, but ShenMed and CareATC and these other organizations I mentioned, Everside, Marathon, they all have begun to succeed at managing this risk. And they have proven that they can do it. And they're about to get much, much better at it because they have just bought into all of them, to my knowledge, have bought into the idea that there are new forms of risk management in specialty niche areas, both clinical and financial niche areas, that can provide immense savings and immense improvements in health outcomes than conventional care has allowed us to do in American healthcare for the last 25 years. So basically, they are trying to attract like patients with kidney disease or patients with diabetes. Yeah, they want to get the, the premiums associated with those patients and they want to manage the living daylights out of them and get way better results. To give you an example of, of how big a deal this is, one of my clients, which is a big state employee health plan with more than 800,000 lives on it. We just sent in their pharmacy data to an organization that specializes in management of specialty Rx. And the report came back and it said that based on what the data showed historically for this state employee health plan, that they expected that over the next three years, if they worked with them, that they could save $1.3 billion for the state on their specialty drug spend. That would all occur under a primary care mantle. So you put the right primary care group in there and then you have these support services that go after other kinds of risks. But all of that is is an integrated function that begins with primary care. That's why this is such a big deal. Well, advanced primary care, i.e. full continuum of care care. Yes. Yeah, I misspoke. You're exactly right. And I say that kind of deliberately because it's almost like by calling it advanced primary care, we're doing a disservice there because it's like full continuum of care care, right? That's right. Yeah. And keep in mind that almost nobody in healthcare wants any of this to happen. This is happening because of market forces, not because of policy. When you say nobody in healthcare, do you mean including the government? Well, CMS has done a great job in sort of paving the way for all this to happen with ACOs, with their various upside and downside risk arrangements and so on. They've done a lot of spade work here, but now it's beginning to take off, but it's organizations are doing everything they can to to block it. Think about the brokers. They make more of healthcare costs. So you don't have Many organizations like Aon or Gallagher or Mercer or any of those guys really looking for people who do healthcare the best and then routing their purchaser clients to them. Because they take a percentage of fees. Yeah, because they're conflicted. The hospitals don't want to see better management of chronic disease because they're making money off of those chronic diseases. It's 75% of all the money. The health plans don't want to see it. The PBMs don't want to see it. The drug companies don't want to see it. The people who want to see it are patients and purchasers, meaning the people who pay the bills, which in most cases are are either government or employers and and unions. I do see payers, though, hedging their bets. You know, there's a bunch of payers who are starting to invest in some of these advanced primary care, full continuum of care practices. 
at the same time, like you, Optum right now employs more primary care physicians than anybody else in the country. It's like 55,000 PCPs or something like that. And, and they're starting to invest in some of this continuum of care stuff. So realizing, I think, that MLR, you know, if you're a health plan, your profitability is capped at what, 15, 20% because of the medical loss ratio. ratio. But providers yeah. have no such cap. So one of the things strategically that makes a ton of sense if you're a payer is to start buying providers because right. there's a pot of gold there. No, that's right. Another issue that we need to bring up to sort of put some balance into this, that's the caution. There's a problem that needs to be discussed because it threatens everything that we've been talking about. That is the huge amounts of money that are, that's now being invested into areas like primary care because what it represents is the realization that huge amounts of current healthcare spend can be recovered. And the question is, when you recover it, who does it go to? The thing that all of us have thought all along is that it needs to go back to the people who've been paying the bill. The patients, the, the unions, the employers, the government should pay less because healthcare should cost less. But when the investor community buys in heavily into an area like primary care, what they're counting on is rapid and very large returns on their investment, which would mean that the majority of the savings that, that are possible would not be returned to the people who are paying the bills originally. They would capture them directly and keep the payment levels where they are currently. Which, by the way, there was just a big announcement, huge investment into Carbon Health, which is another one of these advanced primary care. I'm not even sure if they're advanced primary care. I think only some of their dollars are coming from value, but let's just call them primary care. They're saying that they can hit 25 to 35% EBITDA at Medicare rates, which is a shocking statement if you think about it, because all the other providers are endlessly complaining that at Medicare rates, they're losing money. So these guys are saying that they're going to make 30% on a Medicare rate. And the rationale that they gave was that while healthcare is so inefficient, that it's like taking candy from a baby to be more efficient and then obviously rake in a third. But to your point, then who are those dollars going to? Are they going back to plan sponsors that if somebody does hire them with at a value base rate that the plan sponsors is getting a, a piece of that action? Because if it's FFS, then that 25 to 30% is going right back to the private equity that invested in them, to your point. Yeah, I think that's right. There's no, the physics of it is that there's no way that I, at least that I understand that an organization can make 30% EBITDA on under a fee-for-service regime. The only way that they can do it is if they are capturing a large portion of the savings that they are able to create by driving waste out of the system, but keeping it for themselves. That, it seems to me, is a, is a very serious threat to U.S. healthcare's future and global healthcare's future. Well, I mean, if they're charging urgent care rates, which it sort of sounds like they are, and they're being really efficient about it, like i.e. they're not having people walk in, fill out a paper form, which then they pay somebody to type into the computer, which then they pay somebody to destroy the pieces of paper, which then nobody looks at. So then they pay a medical assistant to type in the same information again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's a ton of inefficiency there. And if they're getting enough FFF, because they figured out how to work the PCP versus urgent care rate delta, you know. 
Yeah. Is, is there 30%? I mean, no, society's not benefiting from it. It's like one of those wealth transfers, like whoever invested in carbon is benefiting from it. But at the same time, if they can do it, that is obviously quite the indictment of the healthcare industry in this country. I have a table that I created several years ago that says this high value niche, let's say it's musculoskeletal, represents about 15 to 20% of total healthcare spend. And there's strong evidence showing that the best vendors within that space can get better health outcomes and knock that cost in half. And so that represents X amount of savings to the system just in that one area. And then I list seven or eight areas where all, where that kind of capability is, is possible. When you do the arithmetic out like that, what you find is that we should be able to get wildly better health outcomes for about 40 to 45% of the money that we're currently spending. And is that eliminating low value care or is that just kind of getting rid of double payments and all that stuff together? It includes all the big areas of healthcare spend cancer care management, musculoskeletal management, chronic disease management, large claims resolution, claims review, specialty referral management. These are all places where there's big money being wasted in how things are being done. When you start counting it up like that, our data has shown that you can easily get way better health outcomes in American healthcare for about 40% of the money. And what I think is, is that the investor community is aware of that now, and they believe that those numbers are real, and they want to be able to capture a big part of that savings for themselves, leave the cost where it is, but then that becomes a new revenue stream to them. So Brian, relative to primary care, did we forget anything that you want to mention? I would have to say that I am more optimistic about the future of American healthcare than I've ever been. I tend not to think that the organizations that are very heavily invested in and will drive primary care, I don't think they'll be successful because in the marketplace, they will be more expensive by far than organizations that haven't given in to the temptation of taking all that money. And they won't be able to attract the business that more efficient organizations will. Organizations like Walmart and Amazon have already demonstrated that they have a financial discipline that keeps them from price gouging. So this trend that I've described in Wall Street is going to bump up against that. And I believe that a financial discipline will win at the end of the day. Said a different way, despite the PE dollars that are coming in, you feel that they will force traditional players, let's just say, to get more efficient. And at the same time, you've got this third competitor with financial discipline, potentially even more financial discipline than the traditional healthcare players who sadly have a reputation for profiteering. There's enough disruption that's starting to happen, despite that in a capitalist market, profit still can be king, even in healthcare we're going to start down a road of improvement irrespective of that. I think that's right. And if I were Optum, that would be my most fervent fear. That Optum undoubtedly is of the opinion that they can co-opt the market and force the continuation of exorbitant pricing, breathtakingly exorbitant pricing in perpetuity. I don't think that the market will allow that 
and that players like like Amazon and, and Walmart are going to be the backstop that makes sure that it doesn't happen. I think that there will be other players that emerge as well that have similar capabilities. So I'm very optimistic about it. We'll see how it plays out. And I've been wrong before, certainly, but I think that things look more promising than I can remember any time during my career. Although Optum is doing more, you know, innovation than traditional healthcare. So, you know, if you were going to pit a traditional IDN versus an Optum. Well, the question is, there's no doubt that they're capable of doing the innovation. The question is, is can they make the transition to making a lot less money, a lot lower earnings and lower margins than they've made in the past? Because their ultimate goal is to make as much money as possible. Can they continue to maintain that under a changing regime? Understood. That's probably a whole separate conversation, Brian. This was a fun conversation, Stacy. You're a pleasure to talk to. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you, as always. Brian Klepper, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.